Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 66, Sarah Wise's Gaslight Stories, Tales from the Victorian Lunatic Asylum. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and what you're about to hear is the acclaimed and award-winning author Sarah Wise's talk from the Whitechapel Society 1888's conference in Salisbury from November of 2014. Ms. Weiss has written extensively about the dark side of Victorian society with books such as The Italian Boy, A Tale of Murder and Body Snatching in 1830s London, The Blackest Streets, The Life and Death of a Victorian Slum, and most recently, Inconvenient People, Lunacy, Liberty, and the Mad Doctors in England. She is also a regular contributor to Psychology Today with the Lunacy and Mad Doctors blog, which contains her Gaslight Stories series on the Victorians' approach to mental health issues. And she is a prolific reviewer of books and exhibitions for such publications as The Lancet, Financial Times, and The Guardian. Links to her many works can be found at her website, www.sarahwise.co.uk. And with the cooperation of the Whitechapel Society 1888 and Miss Sarah Wise, it is my pleasure to bring to our listeners this highly informative and entertaining presentation. So I'm going to talk for around 45 minutes about the issue of malicious lunacy uh, certification and asylum incarceration in the 19th century. And then I'll move on to talk about one particular asylum proprietor who got himself into plenty of hot water over this very issue, a name I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with, Dr Littleton Stewart Forbes Winslow, ripper investigator and general all-round nuisance in the eyes of the Metropolitan Police in 1888 and 1889. And then at the end, if we've got time, um, I'll be happy to take any questions that you might have. Now, we all know how easy it was for Victorian husbands to dispose of unwanted or troublesome women into lunatic asylums. It was simple to make a case that a woman was mad, and plenty of doctors would help out just such a nasty paterfamilias by signing certificates of lunacy guaranteeing a lifetime of asylum incarceration. That's what you did with your unloved wife and your difficult daughter, isn't it? We all, we, know, we all know this is true, and how do we know it? Well, you've got Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White uh, uh, of 1860, a bestseller from the very day it was published and still doing a roaring trade. Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre of 1847 has the mad wife seemingly easily hidden away in an attic without anybody needing to know about it. Uh, and then from the mid-20th century play by Patrick Hamilton, um, first came out as Angel Street in 1938. It's set in 1870 in Pimlico. Uh, very successful British movie, first of all, bought up and suppressed by Hollywood, who wanted to re- remake it with A-list faces, not British B-list faces. Um, and it was shown at the NF- uh, BFI back in January, and it's a really good version as well. So that sort of sealed the fate of the Victorian lunacy story. It's very easy to do this sort of thing. But in fact, the issue of malicious asylum incarceration was far more nuanced than our favourite novels, plays and films suggest. Um, If anything, males were, on balance, more likely to be victims of a trumped-up charge of insanity 
by investigating a number of disputed lunacy cases from the 1820s to the 1890s, I identified the true life victims of wrongful certification and the mechanisms by which eccentricity could be built up into a case of unsoundness of mind by greedy or envious family members, spouses um, and business associates. But I also found out why at the end of the 19th century malicious incarceration did indeed become the feminist issue that we today believe it to have been. So why were men, particularly in the first 60 years of the 19th century, so vulnerable to a lunacy conspiracy? The simple reason is that men were more likely to have money. The majority of malicious incarceration cases were a grab for cash and for control of a family or dynastic estate. Males inherited more often and they inherited greater sums. And when a woman married, her husband automatically gained control of all her money until the passing of a series of Married Women's Property Acts from the 1870s onwards. And I'll come back later to talk about those a little bit more. Larger-than-life Victorians, particularly those with substantial money, property or a business, could find themselves being portrayed to the doctors, to the authorities as dangerously wayward eccentrics, monomaniacs, suicidal melancholics, sexual deviants on all kinds of fronts, um, or hopeless dipsomaniacs by those who were keen to grab an inheritance or control of family finances, but they weren't actually willing to, to, to wait until somebody snuffed it. Short of getting a contract killer out, you want that powerful man in your life out of the way, what's the next best thing? Just make out he's mad. The issue is one of plausibility. Could an unusual or eccentric individual be presented to the doctors and the asylum staff as plausibly insane? And the way that I think a lot of these plots actually worked was to take somebody highly strung or in a highly nervous state, get them into an asylum, and then watch as unjust captivity among the genuinely unwell did indeed drive that person over the edge. And that's exactly what Patrick Hamilton was uh, picked up, picking up on when he came to write Gaslight. She's completely sane, she's very nervy, very highly strung, and by just playing a few tricks on her, he believes he can get her into a state where she's certifiable, and that's it. She, she's out of his life for good. Now, while the authorities maintained throughout the century that there was no real problem of false certification, they did concede that there may well be a problem further down the line um, with the retention in private asylums of people who had become well but who were being held onto by doctors and proprietors who were unwilling to relinquish a patient for whose upkeep they were earning in the region of around £350 a year, very large annual sum in the 19th century. Statistics collected across the century, and they hold really steady, funny enough, right the way across the century, um, suggest that while there was a 37% cure and discharge rate in public asylums, county asylums, asylums for the poor, that figure plummeted to 12% in private asylums. So that's where you're getting your lower middle to upper middle class um, patients, and just 1% of chancery lunatic patients won their freedom. And chancery lunatics were those who were so wealthy, the Lord Chancellor himself was given oversight of their property 
and their income. Put very crudely, the richer you were, the um, less likely you were to be found sane and get yourself released from an asylum. And even the staunchest upholders of the status quo agreed that this really did look like prolonged and unnecessary detention based on a wish to retain a high-fee-paying patient. These things were simply not supposed to be possible following the landmark, uh, passing of landmark legislation in 1845. Um, the wording of the long and seemingly watertight Lunacy Act of that year had been the work of two men, one of whom you may, many of you may have heard, have been, uh, heard Frog talk about on Friday nights, the lawyer Robert Wilfred Skeffington Lutwidge. He's got a very spooky connection to the hotel that we're in now. Um, thanks to the researches of Frog Moody, um, we've got, uh, I don't know how many of you did go on walk, I couldn't make it. We've got this wonderful drawing of the Old Manor Hospital, which was formerly known as Fisherton House Asylum, right here in Salisbury. Um, it was one of the first of the um, purpose-built private asylums of any great size. Most private asylums for the rich were really quite small, and they tended to go into sort of existing mansion houses. So this absolutely beautiful building. Um, Frog told me that his father, Jack Moody, worked here as a sign writer when it was Old Manor Hospital. And Frog himself would go on to be um, head gardener there. So Frog revealed that on the 21st of May, Lutwidge, who, by the way, was um, the favourite uncle of Alice in Wonderland author Lewis Carroll, he was carrying out a statutory inspection of Fisherton House Asylum in his role as part of the government inspectorate, the commissioners in lunacy, and patient William McCave, who hadn't been thought to be dangerous, just very delusional. Um, he had, over the previous weeks, become increasingly enraged that his appeals that he was sane and it's time that he was set free were just being persistently turned down. Commissioner Lutwidge turned up in Ward 17, where McCabe was incarcerated. McCabe was pretending to be asleep, but he leapt up and he'd, been, he'd secreted in his hand a large nail, which he drove, slammed into the temple of uh, Commissioner Lutwidge, penetrating his skull. Um, McCabe was res uh, swiftly restrained and Lutwidge was transferred here to the White Hart. Um, and his beloved nephew, Lewis Carroll, was telegraphed rushed down to Salisbury to be with him, and Lutwidge rallied, and it seemed that he was going to be all right. Um, so Lewis Carroll returned to London, but shortly afterwards, Lutwidge, his condition rapidly deteriorated, and he died on the 28th of May here in this very hotel. Don't know if we have a room number. Frog never let that on, but I was thinking about it last night in my room. Um, in court, McCabe pleaded not guilty to murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility, and he was indeed cleared of murder, and he was transferred to Broadmoor. Lord Shaftesbury, the head of the Commissioners in, in Lunacy, pointed out the murder of Lutwidge as showing exactly why patients should never be given the benefit of the doubt and set free. Um, Shaftesbury, wrongly in my view, said that McCabe um, had known that nothing worse could happen to him if he did this act, except being sent to Broadmoor, where, in Lord Shaftesbury's words, he could enjoy the fruits of his violence. Back then, as now, um, hospitals for the crimin criminally insane were seen uh, by the outside world as a soft touch. And we do have some evidence that certain prisoners were starting to do rather elaborate acts of madness in order to get out of 
get out of Chokey and go to Broadmoor. It sounds mad. You know, who wants to be sent to Broadmoor? Well, quite a lot of prisoners did because it was a damn sight better, more modern regime than most of the jails, even after they'd been reformed in some way. So that's the fate of the man here on the very spot we're in, who was largely responsible for Victorian lunacy legislation, certainly as it was at the time of the Ripper killings. In 1871, two years before his death, Commissioner Lutwidge made the following statement to a sane wife who had been put away by her husband, a Devon vicar. Um, he said to her, we always advise ladies in these circumstances to keep quiet when she'd gone and announced to him that she was planning to take her husband and those whom she believed to be his co-conspirators to court um, for wrongful imprisonment. And she gleefully repeated Lutwidge's statement that he thought was in confidence in print in order to show the double standard that she believed was at work in this matter. Ladies, keep quiet about it, keep yourself out of the public eye, but chaps, if you get out and you want to sue, then that's fine, go ahead. Um, as, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, lunacy did become a feminist issue in the second half of the 19th century, and one of the reasons I think that we, in the 20th and today in the 21st century, started to assume that husbands could easily lock up wives and daughters, is it's actually the women's stories that have endured and are today giving us a bit of a skewed um, view of the subject. Three of the most powerful and lengthy wrongful incarceration real-life accounts that have come down to us in print were written by women. Um, torture the heroine was one of the formulas that 19th century French playwright Victorian Sardou recommended when someone came to him and said, how can I get as many, pe many bums on seats as possible when I write a play? Um, and I think it is still ladies that audiences prefer to see in peril. Um, so I think, I think that's why these women's stories have endured. They were longer, they were much more detailed than the, the, the men who went on to write their wrongful incarceration memoirs. And from the late 1850s, you start to see the coming together Various people criticising the legal and social measures that constricted female freedom, um, the property laws that, as I've mentioned, deemed a wife's money to be under the control of her husband, a husband's total control of a wife's body, that's both sexually and in the form of habeas corpus, which re required a wife to remain in the family home unless persistent and extreme violence could be proved before a magistrate. Um, the English wife had no separate legal identity and her uh, from her husband, and so she was completely unable to mount a civil case uh, or enter into any, uh, any type of contract whatsoever. Downside of that for the chaps is, and you see it in Middlemarch, you get a wife who just goes out with the equivalent of a credit card, and because she can't personally contract debts, all the debts are her husband's, they go on these massive shopping sprees and they bankrupt hubby. I mean, it's a kind of sort of like, you know, backhanded revenge on your, on your fella. Um, but so it is true to say that the image of a wrongly certified wife was very much in keeping with the other very real, more real restrictions placed on Victorian wives in general. Perhaps the most influential of these later 19th century female campaigners was the extraordinary Georgina Weldon. Um, she was a singer, a music teacher, really larger than life character, did not care what anybody thought, uh, very strong-minded, very opinionated. And when in 1878 Mr Weldon, from whom she was separated, 
found her various activities and antics too embarrassing and her requests for money too high, he attempted to have her shut in a West London asylum, Brandenburg House, on the river close to Hammersmith Bridge. And following very unseemly chase throughout her Bloomsbury mansion involving asylum staff, policemen, servants and well-wishers they were running all around this sort of many-room mansion. Always put, when I read it, it puts me in my lap, one of those Benny Hill sequences. Everyone's dashing after Mr. Wel Mrs. Weldon and she's diving in and out of various rooms and they, they don't get her. She escapes out into the night of Tavistock Square, hires a handsome cab and it trots her off to safety. Um, once she got over the initial shock, she, unlike ladies advised by uh, Commissioner Lutwich, decided she was going to take action. She joined the campaigning body, the Lunacy Law Reform Association, and she went on to mount 17 lawsuits against the parties involved, acting as her own solicitor and barrister. Absolutely unheard of for a woman in this day. Um, there she is in action, and the reason she was able to do this was because of the passing of the 1882 Married Women's Property Act, which at long last permitted a wife to institute um, civil proceedings in her own name, uh, which is just as well because her husband was one of the very people she prosecuted. When she was in court, the, the strand outside the Royal Courts of Justice was absolutely heaving. The traffic had to stop with people trying to get a seat in the public gallery. Um, people would be cheering her in and out of the building, throwing flowers. And her trials were the, absolutely the best shows in town. And even Lord Tennyson himself, he, had to, he was seen having to elbow his way, very unseemly, to get himself a decent seat in the public gallery. And in this way, Mrs Weldon won over the public, the newspapers, the judges, and eventually parliamentarians who passed the 1890 <coughs> Lunacy Act following the brouhaha that she caused. And this act brought the figure of the magistrate into the matter, uh, which controversially ended the idea that it's only doctors, it's only people with scientific specialist knowledge who can decide whether you're insane or not. And so it seemed to offer a sort of completely disinterested figure at long last into the whole idea of lunacy incarceration. Some 17,000 people rallied to Mrs Weldon's cause in Hyde Park, and she became one of the most famous figures of the day, a superstar in the fight against all sorts of founders in social injustices. And she was so famous that product endorsement, such as uh, this advert for Pear Soap, earned her loads of money every year. Um, she went up in a, a hot air balloon, uh, with Mr. Small, who, was, uh, who made his money from photographing clouds, uh, so that she could scatter leaflets about her case all over the south coast. And I'm, I'm wondering whether in Cowan Parts and Coronets, that's where they get, you know, Lady Agatha going up and scattering her su suffrage leaflets and being shot down in Barclay Square. Um, very similar type of sort of, you know, character. Uh, she paid sandwich board men emblazoned with the word body snatcher, front and back to parade outside the Cavendish Square home of the doctor who had conspired to confine her in his expensive Brandenburg house for an awful lot of money. He didn't manage it, but she knew that he'd trumped up, helped to trump up this charge of insanity against her. So who was this doctor? None other than Littleton Stuart Forbes Winslow, who, in mid-November 1888, wrote to the Home Office placing his services at their disposal, completely unasked for, uh, and stating his belief, and you've got to really hold on to your seats now, that the murderer is a homicidal lunatic. 
um, he thought he was the first to come up with that diagnosis. Dr. Winslow gave a long interview to the New York Herald in September 1889, in which he brandished before the reporter a large pair of blood-stained, rubber-soled boots, declaring, these are Jack the Ripper's. Um, he also showed the, the, the report of the same man's blood-stained overcoat. And Winslow's story, as I'm sure pretty much all of you here know better than I, is that a woman, knowing of Winslow's, Winslow's interest in the Ripper case, had come to tell him that on the morning of the 30th of August, 1889, um, so as far as everyone at the time is concerned, the killings are still going on. They didn't have, as we have now, this idea of a canonical five. She said to Winslow that she'd been approached by a man in Worship Street, which runs between City Road and Norton Folgates, who'd asked her to come down a court with him for one pound. She refused. He doubled the sum. She refused again. Um, she mentioned this to some passers-by. Um, this has just happened to me. Who looked at him, and then they all decide as a small group to follow him. And they follow him in, um, they, they stop and they watch as he go in, goes into number 27 Sun Street um, in Finsbury, not too far from Liverpool Street Station. The Worship Street uh, woman had also added that she'd spot to Winslow, she tells him she'd also spotted the same man acting very oddly on the morning of the 17th of July, the day on which Alice Mackenzie would be found in Castle Alley. She claimed that she'd seen this chap washing his hands in the yard of number 27 Sun Street at 4am with a very strange look on his face. Quite what she's doing wandering around in someone else's backyard. It, yeah, it's very odd indeed, I think. But anyway, I won't delay you, uh, delaying giving you the suspect's name any longer, as I'm sure most of you are already completely well aware of and have already completely dismissed as a candidate, G. Wentworth Bellsmith, a Canadian commercial traveller in trusses. Um, he was the lodger of one Mr. Callaghan, uh, who also contacted Mr. Uh, Dr. Winslow to reveal that Bellsmith had often spoken of women with great hatred, that he'd spend hours hunched over a Bible muttering, um, that he'd write 60 or 70 sheets of paper at, at one sitting, detailing his angry thoughts about prostitutes. The New York Herald quoted Winslow thus... I know for a fact that this man is suffering from a violent form of religious mania, which attacks him and passes off at intervals. I am certain that there is another man in it besides the one I'm after, but my reasons for that I cannot state. The police will have nothing to do with the capture. I am making arrangements to station six men around the spot where I know my man is, and he will be trapped. Well, reading of this really rather presumptuous act of vigilantism, um, Chief Inspector Swanson went along to speak to Winslow at number 70, Wimpole Street, where he'd moved to from Cavendish Square. Now Winslow did the absolutely classic <coughs> Winslow wriggle. He told Swanson that the New York Herald had horribly misquoted him. Winslow did, though, produce the boot the boots and the coats, which Swanson noted down as a very common type of Canadian galosh, and which were very, very badly moth-eaten. He doesn't say so in his notes, but the indications are that he thought they were just too old and knackered to actually really be wearable. Um, he didn't, Swanson doesn't appear to have taken notice 
um, mu mu any other notice of the boots or and not, none of the coats as far as I can make out. But he copied out verbatim the written statement in the possession of Dr. Winslow by Mr. Callahan, who said he let out the top story of 27 Sun Street to lodgers. Callahan stated that Bellsmith kept very late hours. He had many suits of clothes and eight or nine hats, often changing at least once a day. Callahan said that on the night of one of the killings, Bellsmith had come home at 4 a.m., stating that he'd had his watch stolen. Um, and that's something that Callahan and his wife later discovered to be untrue. Um, but uh, so this is what it took to really sort of get Winslow on the case. Um, Molly Whittington Egan, Egan's brilliant biography, Dr. Forbes Winslow, Defender of the Insane, published in 2001, tells concisely the story of this disastrous intervention uh, and in the Bellsmith episode. It's a career that was really starting to go down the pan already with the Mrs. Weldon's trials and the things that are said about Winslow in court, about his very iffy way of diagnosing insanity. Then he goes and presumably tries to redeem his reputation by getting involved in this case, and that backfires on him as well. Um, Melvin Harris, in his 1987 uh, Jack the Ripper, to Zed, speaks for many when he describes Winslow as the first of the leading ripper hunters to have become corrupted by the excitement of the chase, and even going so far as to call him a humbug, a liar, and a fantasist. And Winslow certainly did use the ripper killings to raise his profile and to present himself as pivotal to the investigations. Writing his, in his recollections of 1910, he speaks of himself thus, to me, the frightened women looked for hope. In terror, they rushed to me with every scrap of information. In my presence, they felt reassured. Uh, Winslow wrote to the Lancet, claiming to have been more or less responsible for the original opinion that the individual who committed the wholesale slaughter in Whitechapel was a lunatic. And he goes on in the Lancet, the horrible and revolting details are themselves evidence not of crimes committed by a responsible individual, but by a fiendish madman. You, the Lancet editorial, um, go on to add that homicidal mania is generally characterised by one single and fatal act. But having had extensive experience in cases of homicidal insanity and having been retained in the chief cases during the past 20 years, I speak as an authority on this part of the subject. Homicidal lunatics are cunning, deceptive, plausible, and on the surface, to all outward appearances, sane but there is contained within their innermost nature a dangerous lurking after blood. Now, Winslow felt particularly confident that he could spot the suppressed insanity beneath a calm, rational-seeming surface because of his lifetime, literally a lifetime, of living amongst the insane. He'd inherited from his father, um, Dr. Forbes Benignus Winslow, the running of two large private asylums in Hammersmith. Sussex House for males and Brandenburg House for females. His father's had a, had a very strange career too. On the one hand, he was hugely admired as being a big name in the world of Victorian psychiatry. Um, and he had, by his own hard work and talents, risen from a, risen from a, child, a, a child of extreme poverty. He used to sell newspapers in the, barefooted in the streets of Manhattan in the 1810s to where his mother, his widowed mother, had moved from England. Um, so he really did, had come from nowhere. 
um, back in, uh, by, by 1840 back in England, Forbes Benignus Winslow had made enough money and become respected enough to open Sussex and Brandenburg houses for high fee paying upper middle and middle class lunatics. His expert opinion was sought at criminal trials as well as at lunacy, uh, chancery lunacy inquisitions and that's where you have to more or less go on trial in front of um, the Lord Chancellor's representative because there's so much money at stake people had to decide by jury whether you were insane or not. But he himself managed to spoil his own career. So it's very like father, like son. Um, from the 1850s, he, he gets dragged into a number of false incarceration um, cases. And he was also suspected of just being paid the most, being the highest paid expert in order to say anything that any family member wanted to hear. So his son, Littleton Stewart, was born in 1844. Um, and he went on to co-opt the Forbes part of his father's name in order to, um, you know, keep up, I think it's help with branding, to be honest. And so he, Littleton, did grow up in the two madhouses. We see Sussex House here. I think that's the only existing photograph of it. Um, it was torn down in the 1890s. And for those of you who know, know West London, really horrible 1970s Charing Cross Hospital is on the site in Fulham Palace Road. Really sadly, um, no pictures whatsoever of Brandenburg House before that got pulled down at about the same time. Um, I searched as high and low and I couldn't find any of Brandenburg in that in, uh, incarnation. Um, so he grew up literally amongst lunatics. Um, and upon Forbes Benignus's death in 1874, he inherited the running of the asylums, though, and presumably because of an indicator about his concerns about his capabilities. The actual ownership remained shared between his mother, his siblings, and his in-laws. And we get a really rare glimpse of life inside a private asylum, thanks to a tour that Littleton Stuart Forbes Winslow gave to an unnamed reporter for the Pall Mall Gazette one afternoon in September 1884. The reporter noted a not very brilliant performance on the piano by one of the patients when he entered Brandenburg House, where there were 15 women at that time. Most of them were out in the garden, and the reporter said, most wore a horrible air of settled depression. They looked vacant and they never smiled. They marched around the lawn in twos and threes. And the journalist believed that anyone who had a reasonably sound mind would soon lose her wits if she had to keep such really sad company. And that was a view that you often see expressed in the 19th century, um, that the same would indeed become mad if they had to mix with the chronically ill. Winslow claimed to the reporter that the average of 19 patients admitted annually to both his asylums, 80% were discharged within a year. And that's a really high turnaround figure. And that figure I said earlier about 37% in public asylums, I think it gives the lie to this idea that once those gates clang shut behind you, that's it, you're in for life. Absolutely not the case. I mean, in the pauper system, if you could plausibly live outside and weren't going to be a burden to the parish and you know, the public purse by being an expensive lunatic patient, they wanted you out that door. It isn't true that people were held on really for no very good reason. This care costs money. Um, so Winslow placed great emphasis on recreation in his asylums and for this he was actually seen as really quite advanced compared to a lot of doctors and asylum keepers in these days. A keen cricketer, tennis player and angler, 
He laid on lots of those activities uh, for his male patients, and he took a hearty part in it himself. Regular trips to concerts and plays in the West End, and there was a small stage at Sussex House allowing performances to put on by patients. And the Pall Mall Gazette reporter noted also with alarm many artworks produced by the male inmates at Sussex House, and I'm quoting now, the billiard room, which in other respects is a marvel of comfort and coziness, has an eerie aspect with its walls adorned by the efforts of generations of artistic madmen who have once been inmates of Dr. Winslow's asylum, who have covered them with pictures in oil, watercolours, black and white, landscapes in defiance of every principle of art, and distorted figures of hideous features. And um, it's just really sad that no, none of those, again, seem to have survived. When they pulled this down in 1888, I don't know what happened to the possessions, but it would have been fantastic to have seen some of those pictures. <coughs> So, as we've seen, Winslow Jr. believed that his lifetime of living with the chronically ill gave him an insight, a really unique insight, into the potential for murder. And he liked to tell the tale of how his quick thinking had saved his life at Brandenburg House. He'd gone into the room of a powerfully built woman of suspected homicidal tendencies, and he'd closed the door behind him. And during the conversation, she pulled out a knife and... Remarking how sharp it was, she told him, I really must kill you, doctor. I'm very sorry, but it can't be helped. Um, Just one moment, he said, uh, she's striding towards him. Don't you think it would be a shame to spill blood on this new carpet? Let me go outside and call for a basin. Um, Perhaps it would be a shame, um, but go outside, but be as quick as you can. So he gets out of the room and he doesn't make that mistake again. But... um, Elsewhere, he would protest to the authorities that he was perfectly correct to break the commissioners in lunacy's own rules regarding the right of patients to send letters to the outside world. This was a hugely controversial issue. If you're stuck inside and you're sane, or you believe yourself to be sane, how the hell do you let anyone else know? Um, The rules are that any letters that the proprietor doesn't want you sending, he sends to the commissioners in lunacy, but um, Winslow and a lot of people weren't doing that. And there is one story of somebody walking down the Brandenburg House wall in Hammersmith, and what plops at their feet is this rolled up piece of paper, opens it, help, I'm stuck in here and I cannot alert the authorities. So it was a really iffy question, who may a patient write to? Winslow, in 1877, just as his father had before, was being hauled over the coals for meddling, that's the word they used, in patient correspondence. And he replied that if relatives or spouses were to open without any sort of warning some of the messages that his patients uh, wanted to send to them, it would cause them appalling distress. He said, you know, because he opened them all, such letters were often filled with absolutely filthy language and violent threats, no matter how rational-seeming some of these letter writers seem to be most of the time. And the commissioners in lunacy, together with the Lord Chancellor's visitors, they're the ones who are exclusively for the very wealthy, um, they had been suspicious of the running of Sussex and Brandenburg Houses um, for a long time. And at a part, the Parliamentary Select Committee, convened in 1877, heard allegations of... Um, number of cases in which Littleton Stuart Winslow was questioned about, about why have you still got this elderly chap in there? 
Um, one of them was um, an imbecile old man, that's the description, who thought he was George III. Um, he, was, he was a doctor called Dr Montgomery Robertson, who'd been detained in Sussex House from 1858. But he was completely harmless, and the Lord Chancellor's visitors had been battling to get him liberated so he could be cared at home um, by his own family. They were very keen uh, with these so-called harmless patients, particularly people who have what we now call dementia. They don't need to be under lock and key. Their family are keen to have them. What's the problem? Let them go. Uh, and Winslow and his father had been holding on to a lot of these very wealthy, elderly, harmless chaps. Um, so he has to answer to the select committee about a lot of these issues. Um, things were much less clear-cut, though, in the case, for example, of one Mr Morton. Um, perfectly rational throughout the day, uh, was known to have sensible and calm conversations with staff and with anybody who came to see him, including the commissioners. Um, but when he was in his room, and Winslow was actually proved right in this, when he believed he was alone, if you were to stick your ear up against his, the door, you'd hear him ranting and raving about his wife in the most violent and improper language. Um, and for years, his, Mr Morton's case was being pondered over, the worry being that if he was released, he would indeed carry out these violent threats against his wife. She had been physically attacked by him twice before he was certified insane, and she hadn't wanted him released, and nor had Winslow. Um, although Winslow's enemies accused him of not really caring about the wife, he just wanted to keep on getting the 350 a year. Eventually, a compromise was reached, and Mr Morton was sent firstly to another asylum, where, funnily enough, the, the threats against his wife stopped, and eventually he gets discharged, by which time his wife has fled abroad so that she doesn't have to come face to face with him in England. Um, iniquitous goings-on at Sussex House were alleged by one Mr J.L. Plumbridge, a wealthy fruit merchant of Thames Street in the City of London, who in 1873 began to suffer bouts of diarrhoea, and it occurred to him that um, this illness might be the result of um, his food being tampered with. And he, he uttered this thought to, to someone else, and on hearing this, one of his business associates noted down this opinion as delusional, um, fetches a doctor who to a doctor to agree, it was a strange delusion that he'd been poisoned, um, and before you know it, um, the family say, oh yes, you're probably right. Um, they, they persuaded him that a, a brief bout uh, in Sussex House would probably bring him to his senses. But years went past. In the meantime, the business went, to, it went into the hands of this very person who'd made the allegation. And Mr Plumbridge, when he eventually gets out, he writes a, a pamphlet called Slavery in England, an account of the manner in which persons without trial are condemned to imprisonment for life. And he says, the asylum had a river on one side, and I escaped and swam across it, but I was recaptured. I was confined every night in what was called a seclusion room the windows of which were blocked up with wood, in which small holes were bored to admit the light. The door was fastened outside with three enormous iron bolts. My clothes were taken away every night, and the only furniture consisted of a hard mattress on the floor. Worse than all, however, separated from this den by only a thin wooden partition, was another of these seclusion rooms in which raving madmen and the most noisy and violent patients were every night immured, so that I could hear them as plainly as though they were in the room with me. I could scarcely get any rest from the groans and the cries that were often kept up throughout the nights. 
um, Mr Plumbridge manages to escape again by going over the wall, and this time he got away to Boulogne. Um, when he eventually comes back to England, he decides that he's not going to mount a legal action against Winslow, because he felt that he wouldn't be able to prove malicious intent. So instead he went and got himself certified sane um, by two doctors and just wrote his pamphlet and was satisfied with that. So that's the rather sorry tale of Littleton Stuart Forbes Winslow. Um, I don't want to end it there, though, because there is much in his post-Mrs. Weldon, post-Jack the Ripper career that redeems him. Just because he did see insanity everywhere, he actually managed to save a number of people from the gallows. His father had been instrumental in um, winning the acceptance of the plea of insanity and therefore diminished responsibility in the criminal court. So in the 1840s, partly thanks to his father, they stopped executing people who are not very well. Um, and Winslow Jr. carried on this battle, involving himself in such investigations as uh, the Old Kent Road murder, the Devereux trunk mystery, and the girl in the belfry. And he particularly couldn't stand the idea that a woman should swing for her villainy, women, in his view, being so less capable than men of controlling their emotions. Um, so he did an awful lot of work in making sure that women on trial for murder didn't, didn't get executed. But he did fail. His spectacular pleading still managed not to save two particularly revolting murderesses of the day, Mrs. Piercy and Amelia Dyer. Um, in one more pioneering project, uh, Winslow founded an outpatient centre where the poor, who were suffering from the early symptoms of nervous disorder, could be treated as voluntary patients in a non-asylum setting. The Forbes Winslow Memorial Hospital, which later went on to be called the British Hospital for Functional Nervous Disorders, opened in February 1890 on the Euston Road, um, with opening hours that were designed deliberately to be convenient for working men and women. Awful lot of people in the middle-class professions would never have been that foresighted. Um, and the hospital was viewed with suspicion, and it was starved of cash by a legislature that hadn't yet got hold of the notion of mental outpatients, voluntary patients and preventative medicine in lunacy. They didn't like the idea that you could volunteer to go and put yourself in. Um, and so the hospital relied entirely on donations and a considerable amount was raised from boxes that were placed in various pubs around London. Winslow was now of the opinion that nine out of ten mental health sufferers could avoid incarceration if they were diagnosed and treated early enough. And he was one of the first uh, English doctors really to understand that mental health had to lose its stigma of compulsory incarceration if the mind problems of the largest section of the population, that's the working classes, were to be successfully treated. And while he did blame drink and hereditary mental weakness for much of the insanity of the poor, he also stressed, again very modern, very foresighted, that their living and working conditions caused them great anxiety. Anxiety going on, as we know, he was right, to cause to be a big cause in much mental disturbance. His quote is, these poor people worry about their children, their work, their earnings and their health. In fact, about almost all mortal things. And sooner or later, their minds, deprived of diversion, give way. So Winslow's transition from Victorian bogeyman doctor to 20th century humanitarian was sort of further enhanced by his newfound 
approval of female doctors, and also by his attempts to drum up charitable patient, uh, payments for labouring folks who were out of work because of a, na uh, um, a nervous complaint. He really could see how that would impact on a working class person's ability to earn. I was going to end there until yesterday when, Neil, you were interviewing Russell, and there was a lovely moment where, well, many of them, but you talked about how the place... And that's certainly what lit my interest in, in history. Going to Whitechapel, going to Spiffield, seeing these places. Um, I know many of you were, were terrific in writing in when we, we were, looked like we were going to lose the, um, the workhouse in Cleveland Street. And thank God that we had to really send that back to the drawing board. Got another plea. Hope this works. You've got until the end of the year, although they really want them as soon as possible. Um, the Bishopsgate Goods Yard. Um, so it... it do you know the Wheeler Street Arch that runs down from Bethnal Green Road down into Commercial Street? Lovely, evocative, long tunnel with a breakaway viaduct in. Well, of course, they went and pulled down half of that, so you've still got some of it left. Um, we fought hard, but we didn't stop a lot of the Bishopsgate goods yard being turned down. Well, here comes part two. Um, they now want to put up four tower blocks of 46, correct, 46 storeys on that site. And that is just going to dwarf, I mean, not obviously half the shard, but you'll have... Uh, so, basically, these developers will not stop trying to bugger up our lovely, shabby, cosy little East London that I think we all fell in love with. Um, so, if you could... The East End Preservation Society formed about eight months ago, and they're doing absolutely brilliant work. They've got some really sort of top-notch people who really understand these bloody awful planning this foreign language called planning. Um, so if you go and join them on Facebook, um, keep, they're, they're winning lots and lots of little battles, like part of Dalston was going to come down, part of the Jeffrey, a pub near the Jeffrey Museum. So they're really on the case. This one um, is, is a big one, and it's going to completely change that entire area. You, and, and, and if you have children or grandchildren who you hope to be able to take on tours, pretty soon we're not going to be able to recognise Whitechapel and Spitalfield. So I've gone completely off topic there, but if you could get involved, we'd, I mean, we'd all be really, really glad. So thank you. And if you've got any questions about lunatics or lunacy, um, and if I've got any time, um, happy to field them. I think we've got time. Thank you. I've got time for a couple of questions. Sorry. Robert, a question for you, sir. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you looked into the uh, Holloway Asylum at Virginia Water. Uh, that seemed to be built for the rich um, and was a beautiful building. I just wondered, was it actually an enlightened uh, enterprise or was it a bit like you've been describing? I think it was very much so. Um, it was quite late in the day, I think. 1880s. Yeah, that, you know, most most of them, uh, most of the ones that we consider the great big uh, uh, bins went up between 45 and 60, and by the 1880s they'd learnt a lot about the architecture and the look. I didn't go into it specifically, but I do know that it was certainly well viewed, held in high regard, as you say, it was for the wealthy, um, and. That part of Egham, Isha, I think had the largest concentration of asylums in the whole of England. Surrey, as a county, had the most, 
and um, that little corner, I mean, if you can see it on a sort of map, if anybody's watching you on a map, it was absolutely <laughs> asylum central. Yeah, and they scrub up brilliantly, like all these asylums, as, as, as housing, you know, luxury housing. A lot of them, that's what they went on to become. But it all happened there, in fact. Yeah. But, uh, when I was at Royal Holloway College, uh, when people who sort of dipped over into insanity at the final time, yeah, got shipped over. That was in the centres. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Have we got one more question? Um, you gave figures for uh, release of uh, patients with private and uh, state or public assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was a sort of cut-off there, I can't remember when, when uh, they used to farm out a lot of the public patients to private asylums like Grove Hall for example yeah. which is a guy um Ischenschmidt is got something yeah. and there was a private one but yes. they didn't have enough spaces in the public so right. they used to ship them out yeah. well, contracted it out. Yeah. <coughs> was the release did the did the private asylums that had public patients try and keep hold of the public No, because there wasn't so much money in it. You just got your statutory fee from the parish. The ones they were trying to hold on to are those who the family are paying big money out of their own their own purse. So no, generally not. Um, but it's interesting you should bring that up. These very large private asylums, um, a lot of them in southeast London, like Peckham House, for example, they come up again and again in the literature for abuses, really appalling behaviour uh, by 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 the staff, terrible conditions, bad food. Um, so, but as you pointed out. You had overflow patients from the county system, and so what they do, rather than build yet another county asylum, is they farm them out to private contractors, and that's where, along with the workhouse lunatic wards, that's where you find the real abuse going on. And they, they, those were the two things that were most controversial in 19th century asylum. Yeah, Warburton has made a fortune uh, because Bethnal Green classically wouldn't spend any money putting up its own county asylum, so they send them all to Warburton's Madhouse. And uh, again and again, in the annual reports of the Lunacy Commissioners, these same old names come up about the poor running. And so what they do is they try to get the licence down to a shorter and shorter time. They try to sort of box them in. And by about 1900, they're definitely making inroads to improve it. And the worst of the private contractors are are going out of business. And the other thing that happens, which um, links into what you were saying, Robert, is the other mindset that, that changes, Winslow is a great case in point because you see a, a Victorian traditionalist turning into a 20th century humanitarian in just one man's lifetime. The other thing that was happening is that you didn't need private asylums as much by, let's say, 1910 as in 1870 because the battle was being won to encourage people who could pay to come into the county system in separate wards or even separate blocks were being built alongside the, the pauper bins where you could pay, but you were under the auspices of properly trained, well-run, regularly inspected state asylums. So the private system starts to just die its own natural death, um, and increasingly the wealthy are starting to use the state system. Of course, by the 1930s, apart from sanatoria and rest homes, you haven't got actually many private patients. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think there'd be a lot more questions. I've got some very interesting perspectives there on Forbes Windsor. And I have to be honest, I've got more respect for that. Yeah. Haven't you? It's good and it's bad in There's a lot more. I, I think, I don't, we'll never be able to put in quite a perspective of how, why he really wanted to press 
the Ripper case? Was it media hype? Or was it the man writing that that? There's so much to think about there. There's so many perspectives on a number of the suspects that I've, I know it's interested to you, and certainly it's interested to me. So above all, let us show a great thank you to our wonderful guest this afternoon. Rippercast, episode 66, Sarah Wise's Gaslight Stories, Tales from the Victorian Lunatic Asylum. I would like to thank the Whitechapel Society 1888 for their support in making this conference talk available to our listening audience, the conference delegate who provided this recording to Rippercast, and of course Miss Sarah Wise for allowing her presentation to be released as this podcast. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, including their regular meetings in the East End of London and their publication, the Whitechapel Society Journal, please visit www.whitechapelsociety.com. Sarah Wise's site, again, is www.sarahwise.co.uk, and her books can, of course, be purchased on Amazon's website. I thank you all for listening to this special episode of Rippercast. And we'll see you next time.